Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. This week, we're mixing it up between two, on the face of it, contrasting genres of the arts. A rediscovered 1970s jazz funk group who are the subject of a new documentary and the world of avant-garde contemporary dance. First up, Simande are the jazz funk group from South London who never expected to hear their music again after breaking up in 1975. But hearing their amazing bass lines sampled on tracks by De La Soul, Grandmaster Flash and the Fugees, their music never faded away. And that much is made crystal clear in a wonderful new documentary. Back in the days, people came out to party. Once you put that on, boom, lights out. You don't want nothing else. You ain't needing nothing else. Just put that joint on. I had discovered this new kind of music and I wanted to turn my friends on to it. Getting it back, the story of Simande details the rise of the group in the 1970s in London, as well as the black British experience amidst the institutional blocks and everyday racism of the time. The blend of jazz, funk, soul, calypso and more saw them gaining fans here and overseas, from opening for Al Green in the US to performing at music festivals across the globe. Simande's story continues with the group surviving against all odds. I spoke to Simande's guitarist, Patrick Patterson, and bassist, Steve Scipio. Patrick and Steve from Simande are with me in the studio. I won't say the heart and soul of Simande, but at least two founding cornerstones of the band. Gentlemen, I know you're doing, you're doing the rounds at the moment in a wonderful way. We feel very lucky to have you. You're in between. I, I gathered as you walked into the, into the studio that you're cutting a new record as well. How's that going in between talking about the rest of your career as, as you've been doing at the moment? Last week we spent recording in the studio at Rack Studio. Yeah. It's been going extremely well. We've cut basic rhythm tracks for five songs. Nice. Um, so we are ahead of schedule because we were expecting to only do three, but we managed to do five. So it's been great. So you kind of, and does it, does it feel like you're clicking back into... Well, we, 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 we started clicking back long before you went into the studio. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, because we've been, uh, we've been actively touring yeah. since about 2016. Yeah, but it's really this year because of the refresh or, or should I say, renewed interest in the yeah. band. There's been a lot of um, activity in terms of invitation for gigs, and, yeah, I'm and, sure, and right. show and festivals, etc. So we're going to be extremely busy. How's it felt looking at yourself, kind of looking at yourselves in the mirror and looking at your the kind of long story of your long career through the prism of this film? That is obviously the reason that we have you in the studio at the moment. It's kind of light and shade in that film, aren't there? There's some wonderful moments, musical moments. Obviously, there's a lot of camaraderie between you guys in the group. And there's some tough times as well. Looking down the other end of the telescope, what's it been like? Well, it's nice to have the opportunity to reflect mm. on stuff that has gone by. And, you know, what's important is that we consider it a sort of a legacy project. So it's, it's felt great doing that. We've had a, a view about the, if you like, the significance of Simande in terms of British black music and mm. how it's gone with the band where we might have expected it to go one way and it kind of didn't exactly fulfill those expectations. But having had the opportunity to do this project with Tim has been really wonderful. 
inspiring in a way also. It's obviously strange, but great. It's wonderful to have all that footage of you guys as young geezers in Brixton and Ballum plying your early trade and stuff like that. I mean, it's great to have great to have all that stuff on record, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, we lost a lot of footage. Um, uh, first of all, we <laughs> have to uh, give Tim a lot of credit for the research yeah. and archive digging that he, he underwent to to retrieve all that stuff. I mean, it, it was... It it was as informative for us as it as it was for you know people outside of the band who was viewing that uh, that documentary, but a lot of footage was also lost you know um, of our tour mm. in the U.S. in particular. We did some television shows in the in the U.S., but we weren't able to retrieve those uh, those footage. So the the few that we have on the documentary sort of gold dust yeah exactly. yeah right <laughs> exactly that, that, well, that, I mean let's, <laughs> let's a good word I'd love to it. come back to that US tour but I'd love to start a bit close to the beginning of Simande and your first LP and putting that together now that sounds unlike anything that kind of came before it and I wanted to I was thinking I was thinking listening back to that in preparation to knowing, knowing I was going to meet you guys where did the sound where did the influences in the sound for that first self-titled Simande LP come from because a lot of things that came after it sounded like it and used bits of it famously samples and things but what about putting that thing together where did the where, what were the roots of that it might be said that there are three roots first of all we had a band Steve and I mm. before we did Simande which was called Mita where we were going on a, a, a if you like a musical adventure to explore time signatures hence the the name and that band worked together uh, for about I don't know, three years or so, when the drummer decided to leave, that's uh, when we closed the door mm -hmm. on that. But me, just one aspect of it. Secondly, there would be our influences, musical influences, jazz and soul and um, a little Caribbean and African stuff. There's a little bit sort of Augustus Pablo kind of spiritual stuff in there somehow. Well, he might have been our contemporary. Yeah, but, I think he was your contemporary, yeah. But um, reggae, reggae music was not really... Our forte. Yeah. Uh, our influences came from other sources. I yeah. Mean, we, Mita did a lot of jazz. That was our focus. And the third area, if you like, of uh, operation might be just how John, how we worked with John Schroeder. Mm -hmm. Because John was very important in the creation of the sound, quite apart from loving the, the music. You know, he had a, a conception about what we should sound like, which was really in tune with the type of music that we wanted to make spacious and, you know, yeah. impactful kind of thing at the same time. So I, I would identify those three. There are many more that I could talk about. <laughs> but I'd identify those three as being significant in terms of the creation of Simandi's music. And yeah. And, and, and I think also important to the creation of the music, obviously, is the fact that we set out for our music to be original. You know, we didn't want to be a pop band. We didn't want to play contemporary music that, was around at the time. Mm. So it was a deliberate focus. Now, what we were going to do with Simandi is we were going to write original music. And also in the writing of that original music, you know, we would be writing about our experiences yeah. at the time yeah. and how society impacted on us as young blacks growing up in the UK at that time. Uh, yeah, and how 70s. political was that? There's the beauty of that music and there's some of the ugliness in which it was realized i suppose in in that era in the early 1970s in in london how political was your music intended to be and how much of it was kind of imprinted on it simply that you were young black guys making music in london 
Oh, no. I mean, obviously, the music is very important to us. Mm. But uh, we saw the music as a vehicle mm. for communicating the experiences that we were undertaking at the time. You know, there are serious situations for young blacks yeah. at that time in the UK. And the music was a vehicle for expressing the way we felt about how we were being treated um, in the UK. And we, th that's why John is so important for us in terms of the whole history of Simand and the communication and getting that message across because John, when he first heard the band, he liked what he heard. You know, he didn't try to tinker with it and say, well, guys, you know, I think the message here might be too too strong. Yeah. Let's try and water it down a bit. He just want to, wanted to capture whatever it is he heard when he first heard the band. He wanted to capture it and put it on vinyl and get it out there. What's political about Dove except peace yeah. and love kind yeah. of thing, the yeah. expression <laughs> that we do there. But the it, relationship songs on the album. On and the there are relationship album. songs on the album. Yeah, yeah. Even even those things that might be considered slightly political, like um, listen, mm -hmm. you know, listen, brothers, this is something mm -hmm. I got to tell you, and, you know, and my sisters. Yeah. There's a way of doing things. It wasn't to say run down to the center of London and, you know, yeah, yeah. run with banners. It wasn't political in that sense. But I, I say that to say this. Perhaps that idea of black people making that kind of music contributed to why we didn't get the sort of exposure that we might have had because people thought some of that stuff is too political to be on British radio. Right. It might have been yeah, that yeah. way. I yeah. don't even know. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it was an expression of what we were going through, what we saw, yeah. how our community functioned. Yeah. Those things. But it's strange in, in a way also, I mean, Patrick is right, although it was not really militaristic in the terms of, you mm. know, the message, um, it was still political and maybe that that's where some of the resistance was met from the radio players and, and you know, record companies that we approached to, to sign the band. But at the same time, you know, you had very strong political messaging from the American artists. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, can there be a more political album than, than that, you know? Um, but Did it feel like it was different, like a big, big US artist saying something that was less sort of dangerous to the powers that be? Yeah, I, I think, right? yeah, yes. It's kind of like came yeah. the filter of it coming across the Atlantic exactly. Ocean or something. Ex exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, they're here for a while and then they're gone. So there's no real connection with, <laughs> right, yeah. with the UK. We know, we know what hotel, what room number they're in, in their hotel, right? You know, yeah. whereas us as homegrown musicians yeah. expressing th that kind of um, feeling, mm. maybe they felt that that was a little, a little too close to home. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they weren't as ready to accept it and promote it in the way um, that they did with the American artists. In the film, we see in time-honoured style your success in America illustrated by spinning Billboard 100 <laughs> charts, right, on the screen. So you did, your music was hitting a real fantastic nerve in the United States. You toured with Al Green and various others. Yeah, it must be annoying not to have all of that footage to hand, right? So that was wonderful. What was the difference in American audiences? What those audiences did was to listen to our music mm. and to have the opportunity to listen to our music, which is not necessarily the case in the United Kingdom. So having listened, 
having had the opportunity and having listened, they liked it. Yeah. And it broke, first of all, in the colleges, really, and moved up very quickly, mm -hmm. America-wide. Uh, it didn't happen that way in the United Kingdom. Of course, first of all, we weren't doing the sort of gigs yeah. uh, necessarily that would lend itself to that. Yeah, and obviously the visibility through who you were touring with and all the rest of it yes. was an amazing thing. Absolutely. Your music came up through the college radio stations and then these amazing live gigs and with some of the people you were touring with, phenomenal stuff, record sales and all the rest of it obviously came with that. We'll have to sort of fast forward I wanted to, because I wanted to... I mean, all this was happening. And then, sort of later in the day, I guess this is like late 70s, early 80s, I mean, late 70s, yeah, it's DJ Cool Herc and Grandmaster Flash and people like this taking your records, taking your bass lines and these, and, and yeah, the nuts and bolts of your music, whole parts of it, and reconstituting it and what became hip-hop. And later became, and there was funk and disco and all these things. It was kind of, this was these were the main ingredients of this amazing new soup that was coming out. When did you realise that your records were being sampled? Because this happens, this happens in secret, essentially, until you kind of switch on some New York radio station, which wouldn't have been easy to have done, and heard this stuff. How, when, did you, when were you first aware that your, your music had this amazing second life, as it were? I think late 80s, early yeah. 90s or something. Because yeah. although we, we, we were still involved in music, we had other pursuits, mm. and we weren't as focused what was kind of going on. But I think Fuji perhaps was the first. Mm. I'm not sure. It might have been some before, yeah. but that was the most impactful. Mm -hmm. They used Dove and others had used Bra, others yeah. used the message yeah. to make their, make their music. And I say, as we say all the time, we think that's a very inspirational kind of thing that those young people did. Yeah. You know, they, when they were doing it, they might not have paid as much attention as they needed to, to the, the niceties of intellectual property mm. arrangements and stuff. But the creativity <laughs> that flowed yeah. from that yeah. was, was wonderful. Really. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, obviously you meet, your heroes meet you in the film and that's a lovely thing, people that have, have used your music to make their music and it feels like there is a familial and collegiate you know vibe to that nowadays that you know you've kind of set you've, you've thrown it like a dove of peace and it's flutters into the air and other people have just <laughs> have harnessed that before we go it is your wonderful album art for the album that you're cutting at the moment is that is that going to be in a similar vein to those early 70s albums which are beautiful now, transcendental uh, things uh, did you know that steve painted those things no well now you do okay not the third no one idea. the no. first two when he was a painter when they're, he was an artist they're beautiful put it up. i agree with you completely. they're amazing pieces of work where do they ha where are the originals to those on your i have no wall? idea we've, we've been trying to trace the originals they're probably hung up on someone's wall someone's somewhere, wall somewhere somewhere yes yes uh, well we've been trying to trace that's them. the next film is about finding yeah. those i think but in terms of the you know um because that, that seems very of a, of a feeling with the feeling of those LPs. I think well, no, different. no, it was... I, I felt that yeah. we needed... I, it was important in terms of the communication of the music mm. for, from our perspective mm. that we also had some hand in the, in the art work of the album cover. And in particular, I mean... For, the the focus when I did the, the painting was to capture as much as I can uh, what the band signified, what Simande meant mm. in, in, an, in, in, in the image of the dove 
at the Rasta Man yeah. and all those things because the dove obviously connects with the name Simande. Simande is the name that was taken from a Caribbean calypso, calypso right? yeah. that involves a competition between the dove and the pigeon and the dove one, etc. And it was a very popular calypso, so that's where the name Simande also came from. I wanted to capture in that image the significance of the name Simande, its connection with Dove, which also not only connected with our Caribbean heritage in the sense that it came from a calypso, but it was also part of the message um, that was communicated in some of the music's peace and love. So a Dove being significant for as yeah. a symbol of peace, you know, and also we wanted to capture the kind of, well, it's not a Rasta person, but at the time, you know, the yeah. time and things. So, so you wanted to capture all of that within that one that one image. And on the second album, also kept the connection with the dove, the Rasta, and, um, you know, trying to keep that, the symmetry between between those those elements. I didn't do the third album because we were um, we were touring at the time and I, I couldn't Too find bad. the time to do it. Too bad. Well, they're beautiful artworks and they seem, as you say, very much of a of a package with the, with the music on the LPs. It's beautiful. I feel very lucky to have, have met you. Congratulations on the wonderful career and good luck with this new record. And have fun this summer touring and all the rest of it, festivals. Well, you're looking you. forward to going to Australia, put it that way. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Steve and Patrick Simande, thank, thank you very thank much. You thank you, Thank you That was Patrick Patterson and Steve Scipio. Now to the director of the documentary, Tim Mackenzie-Smith. And I started by asking Tim how he first came across the music of Simande. One of the things I loved about the film was was everyone's got their origin story yeah. of when they found the band, you know, and I'm yeah. no different. Mine was a mixtape at uni in the early mid '90s, and it, it was it was flying around uni. It was a rare groove mixtape, and it had no track list. And there were a couple of tracks on there which I later found out were Bra and Fug, um, yeah. which were two of my favourite tunes on the, on the tape, and. You know, I just loved them. They were part of kind of in amongst lots of American old classic funk. So I just assumed it was just an Amer old American funk band that I didn't know about. And years later, I was living with a guy who's a real record collector and he had the um, Samande's records. And he was like, oh, have you heard this band they're called Samande? Um, they're, uh, they're actually from, from South London. And we were living in Streatham at the time. And I was like, cool, put it right. on. Yeah. And then he puts the first album on and one of the tunes was Bra. And I was like, oh, my God. It's that. Yes, it's that. Oh, yeah, my yeah. God. And it blew my mind that they were from South London, you know, just down the road from where we were living at the time. And, yeah. And it just threw up these questions, which I always, always wanted answering, you know. Who were they? What happened to them? You know, yeah. why doesn't the world know about them? Because this was brilliant, brilliant music, especially when I you know, started listening to the album, seeing the breadth of different styles. Mm. It wasn't just... You know the kind of harder funk stuff. There was so yeah. much, so many different genres, so many different styles, and it was something that just kind of stayed with me. You know, I was sharing it with friends. We we were having kind of parties most Saturday nights, and we'd always put it on and go, "Check this out, check this out." It's you know, wonderful yeah, when you've this. got something that no one else knows what it is, right? Yeah, and you, can, you can be yeah, and 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 as some of your wonderful 
interviewees, talking heads in the film, say august ones, name us a few. But I mean, we've got there's all sorts of wonderful uh, people in that you've got on the film. To them, it was this sort of under the counter contraband, or, or at least unknown kind yeah, of music. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, amazing. Cut Chemist put it really well. Yeah. It's like you know, you you speak the language of Samande. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, you know Samanda, you must be all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But even like Jazzy B and Norman Jay, these yeah. wonderful people you have, they're, they're kind of like, for them, it was, they felt they were in the know knowing this stuff even, you know. Yeah. And they're both, you know, South London, you know, people in the, in the same kind of stream, right? So it's amazing stuff, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's always been, been that if you know, you know, and if you don't know why don't you know and when you do know you're going to know you know it's it's um, it's been that the secret password is another thing that cut chemist called it you know mm. it's that that special that special thing it feels like it's mine yeah you know it's yeah, like, yeah. it's ours because the the public the wider consciousness of the public you know the band hadn't cut through for all sorts of reasons and um but clearly this is amazing music that needed to be out there and that's why people shared it and you know mm. in the film we have lots of people talking about how they shared it how they used it what they what they did to kind of move the music forward when mm. when cuz you know the great thing is for me is that the music endured purely through the strength of the music it wasn't to do with marketing it wasn't to do with pr it was because people saw no, there something was no in the music kind of mad loved. story to do with the band there was no horrendous story or amazing story or th- it was just the solidity it was purely on the strength of the music because yeah. no no one knew who they were mm. so it's purely the strength of the music the strength of the album cover in some cases what about getting the film off the ground? Because doing that thing where you say, well, there's this amazing band and no one knows them. And they, they, there is obviously that wonderful through line to the way that their music was used. You know, hip, the beginning of hip hop, disco, all these things for which their bass lines and cuts were appropriated. So there's that great through line. But what, how, how do you get something like that off the ground? I see that John Batsek is one of your producers who's brilliant on music films as much as any other stuff. But what about, what's the sell for this? Is it all about getting the footage? How, what's the sell for a film like this? I wonder? It, well, Getting the funding and getting it off the ground. Well, I mean, getting it off the ground was interesting because the industry has changed a lot even since we started the process of trying to get the film off the ground, which Mm. was 2017. It's such a long time ago. But even then, people were like, well, you know, it sounds cool, but, you know, no, I I don't know them. So, you know, you're going to have to show it to me before I I can decide whether I'm interested or not. (laughs) I'll make the film and then you decide if you fund it. (laughs) Yeah, so the onus was put on us by many people, you know, and a lot of people whose opinion we really respected saying... Listen, there's something in this, but people aren't going to pick it up unless you just make it. And we were like, oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) How are we going to do that? And then, you know, it's funny. If I look back now on everything that I've learned over the period of time in terms of how to make something when you are essentially making it really on your own and still doing day work at the same time, I've learned so much. And had I known everything then that I know now, I would have thought twice about doing it. Ultimately, um, I'm so glad I did do it. But it's just I've been doing this for six and a half years, and so every step of the way I've been learning. You about don't seem how tired, Tim. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm tired. It's going okay. Inside. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's been an amazing learning experience for me. You yeah. know, but it, I think the story of the film echoes the story of the band in a way because. The, the band believed in themselves and they believed in their music even when lots of people didn't. And and I think that, that we had to do the same with this because it was always, yeah, no, there's something in it, but, you know, no one's going to give you any money for this. But if you want it to exist, you have to make it exist. So we had to will it into being. And many, many people helped out, you know, with their time or their hard-earned cash to, to keep us going through this process 
we found people who believed in it as much as we did, mm. ultimately. Yeah. You know, because they wanted to see it. And even the contributors, a lot of them wanted to be in it because they wanted it to exist, because they wanted to know what had happened to yeah. the band. You've knocked it out of the park, Tim. It's a wonderful film. Um, congratulations. Uh, congratulations on the doc. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Now to the world of contemporary dance and one of the seminal works of the genre. Nelken by the revered German dancer and choreographer Pina Bausch premiered in 1982. The piece turns the stage into a field of 8,000 silk carnations. The ensemble moves tenderly amongst them while you might also see someone hacking at an onion or writhing on the floor shrieking. It's good old contemporary dance. It is a strange thing to behold indeed, an exciting whirligig and a beautiful ode to the practice of dance itself. Dancer Christopher Tandy from Tanztheater Wuppertal, who are currently staging the piece at London's Sadler's Wells, tells us more about the piece. Nelken is a German word for carnations and the audience will see a lot of carnations. The stage is covered with, I guess, hundreds of plastic carnations and it's a really beautiful image. We start the show, we all enter the stage slowly and bring chairs with us and we sit on the stage. A song is played called Schön ist die Welt, Beautiful is the World. And it's really a beautiful beginning to the piece. You just sit there and take in this beautiful scenography. Throughout the show, which is just under two hours, you see how this field of carnations transforms as we perform over it. You know, it starts very clean and beautiful. And there are different sections in the show where we basically eventually trample down all these uh, flowers. In a way, it's important that the piece speaks for itself. And as with so many of Pina Bausch's works, the spectator is not required to see those themes necessarily. It's really up for their own interpretation. However, in this piece, there are very clear themes. One that jumps to mind is violence, physical violence. The show is a mix of dance and theater, and there are scenes where there's a lot of dance and physicality, but there are also scenes with a lot of text. In the scenes that have text, there is the theme of passports that comes back several times. The work was made in 1983 with a specific group of people and it was done by the company over the years many times. Lots of people were replaced and I would say there is a very clear frame and we work to a high level on the detail and we work very hard on understanding what the essence of a scene is. But at the same time we are something that is the core of the work is the, the individual or the group of individuals and our individual personalities and we're always looking to find sincerity and to find ourselves inside that very specific frame. He'll take my hand and though it seems absurd I know we both won't say a word May 
maybe I will meet him someday, maybe Monday. One of the first shows I saw when I was a student in 2002 was Mazurka Fogo, a piece by Pina Bausch. And I think what, what I love about the work is this mix of really refined physicality and a deep looking inwards in terms of expression, you know, personal expression. And I really love that kind of marriage of, you know, highly sophisticated physicality and searching inside for, for truth and for, like, making yourself a channel for something to pass through your, your physicality and to transmit certain emotions and certain themes that are timeless. Christopher Tandy there from Dance Theatre Wuppertal. And that is all for this week. My thanks to Christopher and also to Simandes, Patrick and Steve and the director of the documentary, Tim Mackenzie-Smith. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu. And Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in. (laughs) 